Hi, this is Dr. Whitney Hauser from dryeyecoach.com, and today I have Dr. Paul Karpecki of the Kentucky Eye Institute. Dr. Karpecki is a content expert in dry eye, and we welcome him to our program today. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thank you, Whitney. Honored to be here. Excellent, excellent. Well, we want to, of course, talk about dry eye today, but more specifically, we want to talk about some key drivers of a dry eye practice. So what are some things that are bringing patients in? What are some things that are building uh, a dry eye business, in your opinion? You know, that's a great question. I think what really builds a, a dry eye practice, believe it or not, is already in your practice typically. And what I mean by that is if you if you have a contact lens practice, there you start asking questions, you're going to discover there's an incredible number of patients who have early dry eye, or if you just do a few tests, such as expression of their meibomian glands, you start uncovering all kinds of precursors to what will become contact lens dropout. When you can do something about it early, keep these patients in their lenses, keep them happy, build your dry eye clinic. And as you do, uh, you know, especially with the symptomatic patients, they tend to tell a lot of friends. There's just such a, a need. You know, they estimate there's between 30 and 50 million people in the United States that have dry eye, and yet we're treating about a million. So there's so many patients there that are in need of this help that once you do uh, take care of them and manage them and do well, they, the word of mouth spreads incredibly, and that becomes really what we call internal growth because these are patients that are there. Another thing you might consider is certainly uh, you can offer, if you want to go external, you can offer webinars, a little bit of a more of a evening social kind of event. That's what we've been doing more often where you, we, we do it because of research, but you can actually do it without that. You can actually say, put an ad in the paper and we have a program on understanding dry eye. And you'd be amazed at how many people will show up who think they might have the symptoms and do, and you just get to talk about it and you can build your practice. But I really tell most doctors that really the key to building up a dry eye practice from the onset is to start looking for it in all your patients, looking for it and asking about it, asking symptoms. But the facts are, if you have a contact lens practice, if you have glaucoma patients, if you ever do much in the area of surgical co-management, and technically if you manage any patient over about age 40 or people under that who use computers a lot, you probably have the existence of a pretty good dry clinic already in your practice. Right. So just based on most clinical practice, even primary care optometry, like you said, contact lens, pre- and post-surgical patients, you've already got a dry practice. You may just not be aware of it. Is that fair to say? That's exactly it. Couldn't say it any better. Right. And really, a lot of these patients, like, for example, the contact lens patients, if you ask them how they're doing, they tend to say fine and leave it at that. And I don't know if they're just thinking you're asking social questions or they're worried you're going to take them out of their contact lenses if they say they're not comfortable or they think that they're supposed to feel them or they think as they're aging, it becomes more common to be aware of them. So there's a lot of misconceptions in patients, so they don't list the information you want. So as you start asking, you'll find those patients already exist in your practice, like you said. Now, you know, tear film balance is really important and sometimes overlooked. You know, how does that really work into your workup and how you treat your patients? Waiting, you ask a question again. What balance? Sorry. Sure. Uh, the balance of the tear film. Uh, Thank you. Know, you know, a lot of times there's an imbalance in the tear film that causes symptomatology in patients and is oftentimes overlooked by practitioners diagnostically. How does that affect the way that you diagnose and treat your patients? 
Oh, that's a great question. And you're no, there's no question about it that that is a significant factor. And, and even our understanding of the tear film has changed over the years. We used to think it was three completely separate layers. Now we understand it's really more like two layers. There's an outer, you know, lipid layer, and then there's the kind of a matrix of your mucin and your aqueous layer. So even that understanding is there. But I think, you know, that the reason why I like this question a lot is because perhaps the significant or most significant component or, or finding we're going to have related to imbalance of the tear film is vision. And I think that's where we get lost a lot. We kind of look for the dry, gritty, burning eyes, and, and often that is there. But quite honestly, the majority of patients who have dry eye, when you start asking about vision, uh, either started with that complaint or they bring it out later on when it's uh, described. And that might get confusing to a lot of doctors because we're already in the world of managing vision, whether it's, you know, spectacles, contact lenses, refractive error, other diseases. So, it, it, you know, all of a sudden you say, wait a minute, that's also the symptom for dry eye. And that becomes a little more difficult to kind of tease out which one is which. But the truth is, when it comes to imbalance of the tear film, perhaps the first and most important symptom we're going to get is instability of the tear film resulting in fluctuating vision. And so these patients will come in with more of a transient blur if it continues to advance without treatment, it becomes more of a permanent blur. But I think that's where we, we really have to be cognizant of, of the importance of, of vision and particularly fluctuating vision. That's our indicator. Now, there are also tests you can do, of course. You can look at tear film breakup time. That being said, you know, that tends to be quite invasive and can be altered, doesn't have a really extremely high specificity rate. But some of these new non-invasive tests now that uh, measure tear breakup time uh, I think are really making a significant difference because they're very accurate. They even can be, some of them can be correlated to visual acuity, which again ties everything together. Uh, I think that's going to change the way we look at tear film imbalance. Right. And it really, you know, for tear breakup time, it, a lot of, a lot of variabilities go into it. You know, how much fluorescein you put in, how long you wait, all of those things. And there's just a large degree of subjectivity to the test. Uh, what about tear osmolarity? How do you feel that that works into the imbalance of the tear film in your diagnostics? But the great thing about tear uh, film osmolarity for me or tear osmolarity testing is that it's the it's an early indicator. See, the problem for years when it comes to tear imbalances, we, we kind of waited until it, it got extreme. If I go back even to my own dry clinic 20 years ago, you know, we were treating patients only when we saw central corneal or confluent staining with fluorescein, and that's, you know, the equivalent of saying, I'm going to start treating this glaucoma patient when they've lost peripheral field of uh, uh, vision. And so it's, it's really kind of waiting way too long, to, and it takes a lot longer to reverse that, and the patients are frustrated, and typically by then there's some nerve issues. So, you know, we've realized that we have to make the treatment, and uh, first of all, the diagnosis, and start the treatment much earlier. So that means you have to start looking at instability at a very early stage of the disease, and it's difficult to do that. Uh, if you express the glands, you get an idea of what's going on, but it doesn't necessarily say you have dry eye. It just says you're kind of predisposed because you have meibomian gland dysfunction. Uh, even myography, if you take a look at that, which I think these are very important tests. I couldn't practice without them, but it tells me, you know, if I'm missing a few glands, there's probably something going on. We have some MGD, but it doesn't really tell us yet we have at the early stages or dry eye unless it's quite advanced. Pretty much the only really sensitive test for early dry eye disease that I'm aware of besides perhaps combining it with symptomatology, is tear film osmolarity. It's really the one that helps me differentiate the imbalance of the tear film between normal and abnormal, regardless of predisposing factors such as meibomian gland dysfunction. And so it is a, uh, it's, it's, probably, it's critical. If you, if you don't kind of have that, you're typically going to be making your diagnosis based on other testing, 
Even lysamine green is more of a moderate disease indicator. Uh, fluorescein is a late disease indicator. Schirmer's is late in the disease. MMPs are very valuable, but they're late disease too because of the, uh, you know, the level of which they have to show positive numbers too. And then you get into, you know, break of time that's typically moderate to severe. So there's very little in that early imbalance stage. So that becomes perhaps the most critical test to diagnosing early disease. So, you know, I would imagine what most practitioners would want to know is if you identify that early disease patient, how do you position your, your talk to them? What do you say to really be a trigger point where they buy in and want to do something proactively rather than just let the disease progress to a point where everyone, including both doctor and patient, are being reactive to the condition? How do you present it to the patient? I kind of have a little uh, sequence I go through that has really helped me greatly uh, to get compliance in asymptomatic patients that are early in the disease. And, and I know for years I probably didn't even have a 10% success rate in, in getting compliance in asymptomatic dry eye patient or a contact lens patient has shown some early, you know, subtle changes and I know they're going to drop out. And then I started working on this area. It's like, you know me, I work on every area trying to figure stuff out. And that's the way my strange brain works. And so I started looking and reading up on it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I started looking at some of these, uh, read on some things, looked at compliance tables, a lot of stuff, and I came up with this, this three-step process. And then I actually tested it. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'd asked these patients very soon tonight. They came back. You know, did you buy a product and did you use it? Because we sell stuff out of our office. And I kid you not, I got about an 80% compliance rate. And I, I was really saying, you know, either way, I'm fine with it. So I set the stage they could say, no, I haven't done anything. I really made it very open to them. So I really think it was fairly right. legitimate. So I do three things. The first thing is I have to have a picture's worth a 1,000 words. So an osmolarity reading number helps but also helps if you took like a picture of their eye, so like a telescreen image or something where you you can show them their eyelids and the myobum not looking right or, or blepharitis or a tear film staining or something early even that, you know, you're just seeing some damage and not to their eyelid margin. Then I magnify it. I find that if I make things really big, it scares people more. So I get it a little bit larger <laughs> than normal. And I put it in there, that's, and I that's an, that's and then an I unfair use, advantage. <laughs> it is an unfair advantage. In fact, I've actually magnified a normal eyelid, and it still scared some patients. Right, so, right. You know, so it really works. So I magnify it, and I kind of zoom in on this area, and then I found this phrase really works. And and let me just, let me put you in the context, Whitney. I want you to think about. Um, you being, say you went in for a re, your regular physical exam and they noticed something. They said, we're going to get a, we need to get a CT scan of your, of your liver, something like that. And then you're there the next day uh, or a week later, whatever it might take. And you've got your pathologist, radiologist, or internist sitting there with you and they're saying, hey, Whitney, and they pull up this image just like a show. And they use these words. I'm seeing something here that concerns me. Can you feel how your energy just, changes. Imagine yourself right. in there and it really does. And for patients you say they say, well that's more serious. That's liver. Not really when it comes to patients' eyes. They feel that same level of concern. In fact more so because that for people say the great thing they'd never want to lose is their vision, you know? And so for them, when you use that magical phrase, you can see them change. Then you see them sit up and look more and look at you. 
now you've got their attention. You're telling them it is something right. important. And then the third part is you tell them the consequences if we don't do anything about it. You know, if we don't take care of this now, we're going to continue to have more of these atrophy glands. And eventually, truly, people, and I, I see the end-stage patients like you do in clinic. I've got, right. my patients are not early dry patients typically. They're coming in, you know, at the very last or down to six meibomian glands or getting neovascularization and conjunctivalization of the corneas. You know, neurotrophic melts ulcers. So I do know the consequences of just letting dry eye go. So if it's dry eye, I could go into that. If it's contact lens, I could say you're probably not going to be wearing lenses again in the next year or two. If it's a cosmetically conscious lady, I'll tell them, you know, you can start to lose and thin your lashes if we don't do something about it now. And these are all true statements based on what the pathology is. So it's an image that's theirs. You know, even Randy or Imaginations is valuable too, but uh, like combining that, but an image that's theirs is so valuable that they say, wow, that's my eye. I like seeing something here that concerns me statement, and then here's the consequences. And I've been able to get significant compliance, and I know in the long run it's in the best interest of those patients. You know, what I really like is the simplicity of what you're saying, the three-step process. I like how you use the you know, analysis of the return of your patients and how many people are buying in because I think a lot of doctors just offer things, don't really follow up with that, so you don't know what your return is, and I think that's ideal. So you really kind of compressed it into something that's nice and easy. And like I said, I think that's a common thing that I hear among colleagues is only my severe patients buy into what I'm saying. And I think it's really about presentation as pretty much all things in life are, and I think you really boiled it down nicely. Well, Paul, I'd really like to thank you for joining us today. Uh, and thank you for joining us for dryeyecoach.com podcast. And join us again next time.